Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. It's great to have you with us. My name is Amy, and together with my husband, Johnny, we lead the church here in Nottingham, England. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And if we can help you in any way at all, feel free to get in touch and email us at info at trinitychurchnottingham.org. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. Well, there was, an, there was a time in our lives, Amy and my life, in early years of our marriage, actually, when we arrived in the United States. We often speak about it. And in that time, the entirety of my political knowledge was given to me by my experience of watching the seven seasons of The West Wing. Now, if you haven't seen The West Wing, then you've missed out on the best television ever created. I'd go so far as to say you your experience of life has been significantly diminished. Uh, Set in Washington, D.C., this um, sweeping story tells the narrative of uh, President, fictional, I should say, fictional President Bartlett's reign, two-term reign over the USA. Now, we started watching when we arrived in America, and the thing is, we knew nobody. We had literally had no friends in the whole nation, pretty much, and, and we actually used to watch it every single night, and we would call the members of the cast, we'd call them the family, with very, very little irony. Now, since then, I've actually learned one or two things about uh, politics from outside the West Wing, and I've actually had to learn a, a little bit about politics in our own country, not just uh, the story of what hap- has been happening in America. And I've, one of the things I've picked up over the last few years is the importance for political parties and p- political leaders, the importance of having a clear manifesto. Now, I don't know if you know what a manifesto is, but if you don't hear it, here's the definition. It is a public declaration of policy and aims, especially one issued before an election by a political party or candidate. So the idea of a manifesto is in the manifesto, this document, you as a leader or as a party are saying what you stand for. What, if you are elected, your time in office will be all about. And the word comes from the word manifestus, which is Latin, and it means to make clear, to make manifest. And the idea is that before an election, you say what you are going to try and bring about. Now, what needs to be made clear? What needs to be made manifest? Well, there's something regarding your inspiration. As political parties, political leaders, that's important. Something, too, about your identity. Who are you? That's important in election times. Something also about your intention. What are your aims? What are your intentions? These three things need to be stated and hopefully then acted out in and through a manifesto. Over these last few weeks, we've been looking at Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4 in particular. And we've been saying that what we encounter from verses 14 onward is Jesus, this leader who arrives on the scene in Palestine and who shares and states a clear manifesto. Last week, we looked at the idea that what Jesus is doing is in the core of his manifesto is to offer new sight. He promises that a moment, his mo- the moment of his manifesto is a moment of jubilee. It's a moment of justice when God's kingdom is about to break in. And as we said, as Mark said last week, that centers around recovery of sight for people who has, have had their vision obscured. And in order to do that, Jesus shakes 
his people. He shakes uh, what's going on. And he's been doing that in these days. Mark helped us to see, I think, last week about how shaking leads to seeing. We've seen that over the last period of time. But that was also what Jesus was doing. He shook the structures of of the society to which he came. This week, what we're going to do is to discover that we're not just called to observe, that is to see the new kingdom, but we are called to participate in it as his people. His manifesto is a manifesto to, for people to join in and participate in the kingdom work. And in fact, that we are, as his people, anointed. I'll come in a minute to what that means, but we are anointed to bring good news to the poor. We are to embody this manifesto in our own lives. In other words, we might say, shaking leads to seeing, but seeing must lead to sharing. But before we get to what that looks like for us, we need to ask, what was Jesus meaning in the first instance when he spoke about himself? And here's what we read in Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And rolling it, he found the place where it was written. So Jesus, the context here is that it says Jesus was teaching in the synagogues. Now the the tense that's used here is an ongoing tense, an imperfect tense. It means an action which begins and is not completed. In other words, Jesus was, he made it his practice to go and teach in the synagogues. This is something he did uh, on a number of occasions. And in fact, he was clearly good at it because people praise him for it. And what we find from verse 16 onward is that Jesus, as part of that general practice, goes on a particular occasion back into his hometown to give a particular sermon to his people. And he's handed the scroll. He's given the authority and the, the moment and the lights, if you can imagine, shine on him. And, and Jesus finds the place in the scroll where a scroll of Isaiah chapter 61 and begins to unpack it. Now that wouldn't be easy to do, but Jesus knows the scriptures so well. And he opens up from Isaiah and begins to speak out this prophetic picture of what God's future will look like. This manifesto, this prophetic manifesto in Isaiah, and he claims it as his own. And here's what we see him read. And I want to focus, I think, on three aspects of this from just this first line, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. One verse, uh, even half a verse, but there's three things that we see. And the first thing we see that Jesus says something here about his inspiration. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says. Now, the Spirit of the Lord is all over the early chapters of Luke's gospel. It was the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God, that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary. We see that Jesus, at his baptism in Luke 3, was anointed by the Spirit of God. We see that Jesus in the wilderness in Luke 4 was prepared by the Spirit of God. It says in 4 verse 1 that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus was prepared by the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 of chapter 4, we've just read it. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. 
And here we see that Jesus is compelled by the Spirit. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, One scholar said this implies a compelling force rather than an indwelling. We've seen that Jesus is indwelled by the Spirit, but here we see that the Spirit is upon him. There is a compelling force of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus for a particular purpose. In other words, Jesus' inspiration, at the the, the beginning of his manifesto, what we find is Jesus stating his inspiration. And his inspiration is the Holy Spirit. Jesus' inspiration is and was the Holy Spirit. Jesus did nothing without the Spirit of God speaking it, empowering it, compelling it. At the heart of the manifesto of the kingdom is the reality of the Holy Spirit. And we as a church need to know that because in this Pentecost season, we need to lean into the Holy Spirit like never before. Church, a revival is coming, but it is a revival that will depend on the strategies of heaven, the power of heaven. We cannot make it there in our own strength. It is from him. It is of him. And Jesus models the way. His kingdom is empowered and compelled by the Spirit of God. There's something there about his inspiration. But actually, there's something here that's very clear about his identity. He says, because he has anointed me, anointed me. Jesus says that somebody, the Spirit of God, the one who sent him, has anointed him. This is an insight into Jesus' identity. Now, the word anointed comes from a word, a Greek word, creo. And that's the word from, it means anointed. That's the word from which we get the word Christ, which literally means anointed one or Messiah. Now to be anointed was to be a kingly figure because what would happen is if you were being prepared or it was being prophesied over you that you would be a king, somebody would break, usually a prophet, would break a a jar of, of oil over your head, setting you apart for that particular ministry as king. Now, Israel in this time had been waiting, not just for a run-of-the-mill king, but the ultimate king who was prophesied and promised for generations beforehand, for whom they'd been waiting over 400 years. And that king was going to establish God's kingdom on earth as it was in heaven. They were awaiting Israel's true king, a leader who would rescue them fully and finally from the oppression under which they had been laboring for many, many years. And we see an insight in Luke 3 where Jesus is baptized, this moment of heavenly anointing. The clouds part. The voice of the Father says, This is my Son, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove, anointing him as this king, as Israel's true king. But not only that, this king is the earth's true king, because this king is the creator God in flesh. At the heart of the kingdom message is the idea that in Jesus, God has come to take control of creation again. He is the true king. This is something about his identity. Jesus states in his manifesto, his inspiration, the Holy Spirit, his identity is the one who's been anointed as Israel's true king and creation's king. But he doesn't stop there. He begins to speak into, in his manifesto, his intention. And here we see his intention. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. First of all, 
Jesus' intention is that he wants to bring, to proclaim good news. Good news, the word gospel. He wants to bring gospel. He wants to bring good news. Now, this word in the culture of the, of the time would have, been, would, would have been widely known that uh, when gospel was sent out, it was usually an announcement that the emperor had, had some kind of, uh, maybe a, a, a child who would be in, in the future the emperor. Or perhaps that the emperor had, had, had become uh, had been enthroned, a new emperor had been enthroned. That was what gospel was in this culture. It was about the moment of arrival of a king. In contemporary Greek, it denoted weighty, authoritative, royal, uh, a, a royal or official message. It was a powerful declaration of a new reality coming to place. And it had to do with kingship. It had to do with power. It had to do with authority. That was what gospel was all about. This is a message of the coming of a king, of the coming of the kingdom. But look at this. That's what the gospel is. But look at the audience to whom it comes. That's significant to say before I get into that, actually. Notice here that it's good news. Gospel is good news. It's not good advice. We often get this wrong, don't we? But the gospel was a piece of news. And when when a piece of news comes, it doesn't demand that you do something. It just demands that you receive it. You become a hearer of it. This gospel was, for those who would hear it, good news. And the proper response to good news is always celebration. What we find, though, with this good news is that it it isn't necessarily good news to the powerful. It is good news to the poor. Those who should be receiving this as good news aren't the ones who are going to directly benefit from a new emperor over the region. But it's those who are going to benefit from Jesus' coming kingdom. And they are described clearly here as the poor. Who are these people? Who are the poor to whom Jesus refers? The poor are the recipients of the good news. They are those, not only those who are economically impoverished, but all those who are marginal or excluded from human fellowship. The outcast. They are the losers in the competitive race for scarce resources, economic security, honor, and power. Their only recourse is to look to God for help. The poor are the losers in the rat race. They're the marginalized, the outsiders, the marginal people. The ones for whom society isn't primarily set up. The ones who have to work doubly as hard to make it in the world. And even then, who are discriminated against. So in this culture, poverty wasn't, at least in this sense, wasn't a function necessarily of economic acumen or resource, although that was part of it. But it had to do with education, with gender, with family heritage, with religious purity, with vocation, and so on. It was to do with status and it was to do with honour. And one scholar says this, by directing his good news to these people, Jesus indicates his refusal to recognise those socially determined boundaries. Asserting instead that even these outsiders are the objects of divine grace. Others may regard such people as beyond the pale of salvation. But God has opened a way for them to belong to God's family. 
But it's more than that. It's not just that these people can belong. It's that these are the ones to whom the gospel of the kingdom, the announcement of the coming king, is aimed. They're the first in line. It's not that just this news will trickle down. This kingdom manifesto is not uh, capitalist. In other words, it doesn't begin or it's not birthed in trickle-down economics. It's a complete upside-down kingdom. Our kingdom, the kingdom of capitalism, says if we make enough people at the top of the pyramid wealthy, then eventually the money will trickle down to the lower echelons. By the way, it's never worked. The gospel of the kingdom says the reverse. It turns the pyramid on its head and it says we're going to resource with God's blessing those who are poor, those who are marginalized, those who are outcasts. We're going to put them first in line. Jesus in his kingdom manifesto was saying these are the ones who are first in line. My kingdom, he says, is intended to benefit such people because it is a public announcement of, of the fact that those, the world who are, who are, those whom the world who is called outsiders are being welcomed into the inside of the family of God. Those who the world has dishonored are being placed in the seat of honor. Because receiving the kingdom doesn't require you to measure up. It simply requires you to be open and hungry. And often it's the poor, the those who are on the outside, who are most open and most hungry. Encountering this in our Bibles should give us pause for thought. It should make those of us who are in the family of God already ask the question, who are the poor? And how is my life positioned toward them? Who are they? Who are the ones that God now in Christ is announcing the message of the kingdom to? Who are the ones? Is it not the victims of any and every injustice? Is it not the victims of racial justice, of domestic violence, of modern slavery? Is it not those who struggle and suffer under the burden of poor mental health? Is it not the elderly marginalized in a society in which youth and good looks are prioritized rather than wisdom? Is it not the economically poor? Is it not sometimes the economically rich? enslaved in the palaces of their own making, isolated from true relationship? Is it not children in abusive situations? Is it not the prisoners in the prisons? Prisoners of their own previous mistakes. We could go on. But understand this, the gospel, the good news of the king and his kingdom is biased toward those poor. It's biased Toward those who are outsiders, who the world sees with dishonor. And if the gospel we preach, and in fact if the faith and the gospel we carry is not heard as good news by those people who Jesus describes as poor, then it is not the gospel that we are carrying. Let me say that again. If the gospel we preach and the lives we live as Christians is not received as good news by those on the outside, those on the margin, that it is not the gospel that we're carrying. If our churches are not places of welcome to the outsiders, then they are not filled with the presence of God, however nice our meetings may feel. Because if Jesus' ministry is positioned and aimed at the poor, then our lives and our churches 
must also be. The question then is, what might this look like for us? And I want to tell a story as we look at that, as I come into land. And it's the story of Ruth Rice. And you can hear her story uh, on our most recent uh, prayer meeting. In fact, you can read it in her book, uh, which is available at the moment on Amazon. And uh, just a great read. Please do check that out. But Ruth is a member of our church. And let's begin with her inspiration. Let's put it through the categories we've spoken about. Twelve years ago, around 12 years ago, after 20 years of primary school teaching, Ruth experienced what she described as a massive breakdown. Uh, a breakdown in her emotional and mental health. And she spent the best, year, best part of a year in bed. She experienced a deep sense of shame because she was experiencing this, de- this breakdown as somebody... Uh, who had grown up in the church, and she felt she should have been resilient to this kind of thing. She said that the lights had gone off. And in the midst of this crisis, uh, this dark wilderness, uh, you might call it, she discovered that the spirituality spirituality that she developed over many years, she described herself as uh, somebody from the brethren in recovery. Uh, she's discovered that her spirituality, which was based on serving God with all that she had, praying long and hard and, and leading in the church, all of this great stuff. She said that that spirituality was completely useless to her in her crisis. All of it fell to the well, wayside and she was left in her bed, broken, crying out for God. And in fact, she even lost her voice. It was impossible for her even to cry out. But around and during that time, there was a moment of encounter where she felt God holding her close in his arms, saying, Ruth, I couldn't love you anymore, and I'll never love you any less. You see what's happened in her poverty? In her poverty, the Spirit of God inspired her. He breathed, inspiration, by the way, that means mean to breathe into. The Spirit of God breathed into her. She experienced and received the gospel as good news for her. She had always been good news for everyone else, but in that moment it became good news to her. And she said, I was born again, again, that day. I would say that was her moment of inspiration. And just like Jesus was in that moment, she was compelled. Not just to receive that for herself, but to do something about it for others. She developed over, uh, by God's grace, over a season, a vision for uh, a place where it would be okay not to be okay, because there was a king who had come for the people who aren't okay, for the poor, for the marginalized. That was her inspiration, and she began to hear God speak to her words of identity, And uh, she began to feel the Spirit of God anointing her. And she spoke to us this last Wednesday. And as she was leading us in prayer, I just, only the word coming through my mind she was leading us was, this woman is anointed. This woman is anointed for this. It was a powerful time of prayer. And she opened a cafe space at the invitation of a local cafe in West Bridgeford who said, look, we've got lots of people coming. and Many of them are isolated. Would you open a cafe? Uh, where people who are isolated in and around us could come and find home. And so she did. And it began to prosper. And at the heart of it was this rhythm, simple rhythm of prayer that she herself had discovered. And what she found is that when a a space was created for the poor, around prayer, around the presence of God, that people would come, they would find home, and they would find faith in Jesus. 
She had an inspiration. She experienced alongside that a new identity, a new authority and anointing. And she gathered an intention. Her intention was clear to bring good news in this way, particularly to those with mental health challenges and renew well-being. A charity was born and uh, alongside this cafe uh, have sprouted up since 50 other cafes. They think that was by the beginning of lockdown. They think that actually there may be another 50 by the time lockdown is over. And the message was this. It was good news to the poor, which was that a community of hope was being born in the middle of the world. A community which was there for the people who knew they weren't okay, but who were hungry to meet with others and to meet with God. And God has used that and profoundly spread that message so that there's this place of hope in the middle of the world. She is a leader among us. This is what God is doing in these days. Now, we're not all going to do that. We're not all going to have that exact story. But I can tell you with confidence that it is in the moments of my greatest poverty that God has done his greatest work in me, his work of inspiration, his work of anointing and of clarifying my identity and also my intention and my calling. I was bullied uh, remorselessly through my teen years. It was in that very space that I began to cry out to God, begin to learn how to feed on the scripture, begin to draw near to him. I, I've, my faith fell apart. I've shared this to you in my, in my late teens and early 20s. And it was in that moment again that God began to put foundations uh, in me. And I will say that this last 12 weeks of lockdown has been the most challenging time for me personally. As God has just stripped back and worked in, in painful, painful and personal ways on my core. And I don't know what the result of this is going to be, but I know he's been at it. And I know it will be about inspiration. And the blessing, if there is a blessing to be reaped, it will be a blessing of good news for the poor. We don't have to launch a national charity. We don't have to plant a church. Some of us will. But we all have to live lives which are good news to the poor. That mandate is on every Christian, whoever you are. And so today, Christian, follower of Christ, member of Trinity, receive the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Church, the Spirit of God is on us, compelling us for this. This good news is in your hands. Don't wait for the institution to do something. This is about individuals and institutions moving with the Holy Spirit as he anoints us for his work. Church, receive the inspiration. Church, know your identity. This is who we are. We are the King. We are King Jesus' people, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are anointed to bring good news to the poor. Church, Follow this manifesto. Follow Jesus' intent. He is good news to the poor, to those on the margins who don't feel at home. Because he has done everything required for every person to become a friend of God, all we need to do is accept it. And he offered this message to the poor first. This is our message. This is the message on our lips and the message in our hands. 
For some of us, it will mean crossing the street to smile at someone. For some of us, it will mean a simple and small act of kindness. For some, befriending someone different to us or someone who we know has no other friends. For some of us, it's just making friends with our neighbours, the people who we've ignored because we've been too busy. For some of us, it is following a radical call to rearranging our lives But whatever it is, church, let us take up in the inspiration of the Spirit, the anointing of our new identity and the intention of this kingdom manifesto. Let's take up the gospel, which is good news to the poor, in our hands and in our hearts. Amen. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did, both individually and in our lives together, so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening.